Although it's released separately, this episode on the Holocaust is intended to be the second half of a single episode. Due to the length, I posted it in two parts. The first part discussed the first two phases of the Holocaust, discrimination and the dual threats of the Einsatzgruppen and ghettoization. This podcast episode will begin with the third phase, the concentration labor camps. You're listening to Anarchy, Empires, and Other Notable Moments. This is the fifth episode in our series regarding the life of Adolf Hitler. The Holocaust is War Against the Jews, Part 2. While the death squads continued to commit mass murder throughout Eastern Europe, the Holocaust in Germany, Poland, and Austria had entered into the third phase, concentration camps. Including the ghettos, the Nazis created more than 44,000 different camps between 1933 and 1945. The sheer number of the institutions again flies in the face of any doubter that imagines the Holocaust as the work of just a few bad apples, rather than the whole of society at large. The first concentration camp was Dachau. Today, Germans can take a high-speed train and arrive there from Munich in a mere 11 minutes. This camp was initially used for political prisoners. It was not liberated until April of 1945, the same month that Adolf Hitler committed suicide. The timeline shows that the Nazis didn't initially have a clear-cut idea of what to do with their Jewish citizens. Camps were created in 1933, but indiscriminate large-scale roundups did not begin until the final months of 1938. The Smithsonian Magazine dives deep into the question of when Hitler decided to commit genocide. The earliest evidence comes from an interview with a journalist in 1922, during which Hitler bluntly states, quote, Once I really am in power, my first and foremost task will be the annihilation of the Jews. But after gaining power, he for sure looked to other, more humane acts for dealing with his Jewish question. Among the efforts were an attempted purchase of the island nation of Madagascar, as well as exploring the chilly option of deporting Europe's Jews to the Arctic Circle. The determination for mass murder as the solution likely came after Hitler had betrayed the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. The Smithsonian elaborates on this, saying, According to scholars Christian Gerlich and Peter Monteith, among others, the pivotal moment for Hitler's decision came on December 12, 1941, at a secret meeting with some 50 Nazi officials, including Joseph Goebbels, the Nazi minister of propaganda, and Hans Frank, the governor of occupied Poland. Though no written documents of the meeting survive, Goebbels described the meetings in his journal on December 13, 1941, where he wrote, With respect to the Jewish question, the Fuhrer has decided to make a clean sweep. He prophesied to the Jews that if they again brought about a world war, they would live to see their annihilation in it. That wasn't just a catchword. If the German people have now again sacrificed 160,000 dead on the Eastern Front, 
then those responsible for this bloody conflict will have to pay with their lives, end quote. Obviously, the Jewish people didn't cause World War II. Our prior episodes go into great detail how Adolf Hitler planned the war at least four years in advance. The timeline established by Goebbels means that there were parts of eight years where the pipeline of the camp structure wasn't specifically designed to end in the gas chambers of the death camps. This enables us to examine the concentration camps and the death camps as separate phases of the conflict. There were a few types of different camps that tend to get lumped together under the term concentration camp. Forced labor camps brutally exploited prisoner labor for the Reich's economic gain. I'll occasionally use the term prisoner for those held in the camps. It's worthwhile to note that these men, women, and children were not prisoners in a traditional sense, as none of them were afforded the right of a trial. Transit camps were holding facilities for individuals that were awaiting transfers. Prisoner of war camps were typically held in separate locations, often with slightly better treatment. Throughout the camp structure, prisoners were first exploited for their labor. The Germans never wasted any resources available to them. As mentioned in the Einsatzgruppen section, clothing was removed and repurposed for the German military. In the camps, the victims' gold fillings were even removed so they could be melted down for the benefit of the Reich. Auschwitz and Dachau both infamously displayed the phrase Arbeit Markfrei, which translates to Work Will Set You Free. This was, of course, merely false hope. The Nazis wanted to exploit the prisoners, but they weren't ever going to let them go free. Code terms such as sent to a farm were used rather than the more accurate phrase of sent to their death. Even the conditions in work camps were designed to slowly kill the individual's soul and body. The BBC elaborates, stating that living conditions were poor because the SS believed that prisoners deserved no better. Before the war, the SS still provided a bare minimum. During the war, conditions became deadly. Prisoners slept in broken-down barracks with leaking roofs. They were crammed onto tiny bunks, often without blankets, or directly onto muddy floors. Some prisoners had to sleep in flimsy tents or damp tunnels. Rations were cut, causing mass starvation. Hunger and disease turned many prisoners into living skeletons. Seriously ill prisoners had little hope of survival. Camp hospitals offered hardly any medical treatment. Instead, sick inmates were routinely executed or deported to die in other camps. Additionally, those interned were forced to walk naked from their bunks to the bathhouse in the winter, which led to epidemics regularly spreading within the overcrowded housing units. This represented a conscious policy of annihilation through work. The gas chambers that were initially installed in the concentration camps were built to euthanize prisoners who had become too weak to work. There was no form of protest available to the victims, as the guards had no incentive to do anything but kill an individual that wasn't meeting their expectations or constant check-ins. There was no free time or days off within the camps, and requirements were not adjusted based upon their captive's ability. 
At the Mauthausen concentration camp in Austria, starving inmates were forced to run up the 186 steps of a stone quarry, all while they were carrying heavy boulders. Lusik Saltzman had a number of work experiences that he detailed in his memoir, The 23rd Psalm. Among his experiences were jobs making soup in the kitchens, working on assembly line making toys, and working on German aerial bombs at a factory. Each job provides unique insight into both the camps and the laborers' thought processes. Each of these jobs were an opportunity for the young man, as it meant that he worked inside on a relatively easy task, at least physically. There were no positive experiences in a concentration camp, however. While making soup, Lusik was forced to interact with a male German cook who forced the teenager to draw pornographic images for him during breaks. The pre-teen survivor had never seen a naked woman or anyone engage in sexual relations and had to worry that angering this pervert would draw negative attention to him and result in a significantly worse station. While he was assembling toys, Lusik became overcome with all of the emotion and exhaustion of daily life. He vividly recalls crying on the toys that he was crafting and wondering if German Christian children had any idea that their holiday toys were stained with the tears of Jewish slave labor. More internal conflict beset the young man when he was assigned to assemble bombs that would ultimately be used against the forces that were most likely to liberate him. Although he hated his captors with every fiber of his soul, he was unwilling to sabotage any of the armaments for fear of being discovered and sent off for execution. The best that he could manage was referred to as idling, which is the act of purposefully working slower than you are capable of. Even being caught doing this could mean death for the inmate. This was his last work position during the conflict, and the factory was even bombed by Allied forces overnight. Lusik recalls the emotions of that moment. What he expressed was not relief at the closeness of their saviors. Instead, he experienced deep fear because without the existence of the factory, there was no value to keeping the workers alive. When Blitzkrieg failed to produce a quick military victory, Germany was forced to mobilize its entire population in an effort to win the war. Unwilling to take women out of their traditional roles, slavery made up between 25 to 60% of the workforce in factories. Major corporations such as Audi, Bayer Medicine, BMW, Daimler-Benz, Ford Motor Company, IBM, Shell, Siemens, and Volkswagen were all among the businesses that benefited from forced labor provided by the Holocaust. Female prisoners were forced into labor along with male counterparts and had to suffer additional harassment and violence in the camps. I'll let the U.S. Holocaust Museum explain the horrificness of these challenges, as they'll do it significantly more eloquently than I. The institution tells us that, quote, 
In ghettos and concentration camps, German authorities deployed women in forced labor under conditions that often led to their deaths. German physicians and medical researchers used Jewish and Roma experiments and other unethical human experimentation. In both camps and ghettos, women were particularly vulnerable to beatings and rape. Pregnant Jewish women often tried to conceal their pregnancies or were forced to submit to abortions. Females deported from Poland and the Soviet Union for forced labor in the Reich were often beaten or raped or forced to submit to sexual relations for food or other necessities or basic comforts. Pregnancy sometimes resulted for Polish, Soviet, or Yugoslav forced laborers from sexual relations with German men. If so-called race experts determined that the child was not capable of Germanization, the women were generally forced to have abortions, sent to give birth in makeshift nurseries where conditions would guarantee the death of the infants, or simply shipped to the region they came from without food or medical care. The Germans established brothels in some concentration labor camps, and the German army ran roughly 500 brothels for soldiers, in which women were forced to work, end quote. The Holocaust Museum finishes with the detail that many women incarcerated in the concentration camps created informal mutual assistance groups, which facilitated survival through sharing information, food, and clothing. Often, the members of such groups came from the same city or province, had had a similar level and style of education, or shared family ties. Other women were able to survive when the SS camp authorities deployed them in clothing repair, cooking, laundry, and house cleaning detachments. Ravensbrück was the largest concentration camp dedicated solely to female prisoners. By the end of the war, 100,000 women had been detained in the camp. In 1942, the SS began to operate brothels in many of the camps. Guards and other laborers would thus be given access to sexual relations with the individuals whom they supposedly considered as less than human and whom they were seeking to destroy. The women trafficked into the sex work mostly came from Ravensbrook. Although the vast majority were forced into the work, there are stories of individuals that volunteered after they were promised freedom if they worked for six months. The SS, of course, failed to keep up their end of the bargain. German males weren't the only ones responsible for these crimes against humanity. Ravensbrück had a number of female SS guards working in the camp. One guard, who lived with her family at the camp, described her experience as breathtaking. From her balcony, she could see a forest and a pretty lake, but from the bedrooms, they would have had to have seen chain gangs of slave laborers, as well as the chimneys of the camp's gas crematorium. The guard despicably claimed that, quote, it was the most beautiful time of my life. Damien McGuinness wrote about the camp for the BBC and had this to say about the SS women of Ravensbrook. Sometimes the Nazi women were portrayed as exploited victims, at other times sadistic monsters. The truth is more horrifying. They were not extraordinary monsters, 
but rather ordinary women who ended up doing monstrous things. The Nazis also used their endless supply of bodies to perform sadistic medical experiments in the camps. Hitler's personal physician, Karl Brandt, was among 15 defendants found guilty of war crimes at the doctor's trial. Here's a quick summary of some of their experiments. At Dachau, they placed prisoners in low-pressure chambers, which simulated high-flying altitudes. The prisoners were monitored as they died for clues to why pilots suffered from altitude sickness when forced to eject. Sigmund Rascher even dissected some of the victims' brains while they were still alive in order to diagnose the cause of the sickness. The same doctor subjected inmates to freezing conditions to examine ways in which to prevent soldiers from succumbing to the harsh winters along the Russian front. The so-called doctors would strap them down naked and douse them with freezing water. Then, with a stopwatch, they would sit there and monitor how long it took for the victim to die. Somehow even worse, they then attempted to revive them to figure out which resuscitation methods were the most effective. Among the techniques explored were scalding hot baths and forcing women to copulate with the frozen victim. In Ravensbrück, they simulated battlefield-like wounds on the victim, and then purposefully infected these wounds with tetanus and gangrene, so that they then could try to stave off the infection that was attempting to claim the victim. Even more sadistic, Ravensbrück prisoners were subjected to experiments which attempted to discover if amputated legs and shoulders could be reattached from a different person's body. The measures taken weren't only to save Germans on the battlefield. In Buchenwald, they tested the effectiveness of different poisons on their victims. Survivors of the poisoning would still be killed so that an autopsy could be performed to figure out why it had been ineffective. In Auschwitz, methods to sterilize individuals were researched at the same facilities in which they practiced different methods for the improvement of artificial insemination. Karl Klauberg taunted his victims by letting them know that he had just implanted animal sperm within the women that were unfortunate enough to be sent to his torture chambers. The last phase of the Holocaust were the death camps. These camps were mostly located in Poland, with the first being Kelmno in December of 1941. Belzec, Sobohor, and Treblinka followed in 1942. Each ran gas chambers that first utilized carbon monoxide to send their victims to the afterlife. Auschwitz-Birkenau then began using Zyklon B, a form of hydrogen cyanide. At Auschwitz, an average of 6,000 Jews were gassed in the four chambers each and every day, seven days a week. The true purpose of the camp was kept secret from the inmates so as not to inspire rebellion. The Nazis continually suggested that their inmates would survive the ordeal that they were putting them through. 
In keeping with this message, the crematoriums were presented as showers to the captives. Despite the captors' efforts, it was impossible to not know what was going on, as each camp ended up with a backlog of bodies left outside on display while awaiting cremation. The killing centers claimed 46% of all Jewish victims. Again, these records were meticulously kept by the bureaucrats running each camp. Regularly writing reports, sometimes late in the night with light coming from lamps that were shaded by the flesh of their victims, more than 2,772,000 Jews left this world through one of six final camps. These camps were incredibly effective. Kelmnau was the first extermination camp on Polish soil. It began its operations on December 8, 1941, one day after the Japanese surprise attack at Pearl Harbor brought America into the war. Although Kemnau only utilized three vans hooked to an exhaust pipe, they were able to murder nearly 300,000 Jews and 5,000 Sinti and Roma prisoners. There were only three individuals to survive the camp, two of whom were Jewish. These numbers were common. In Belzec, only two Jews survived the camp. In Treblinka, only 70 prisoners survived the war as the camp was raised upon the Nazi withdrawal. Similarly, approximately 50 to 70 Jews survived Sobobor. The numbers were slightly better for Madarnek and Auschwitz. Auschwitz saw 1,200 individuals walk away from the camp while Madarnek left behind 12,000 prisoners, none of whom were Jewish, however. Secrecy was part of the reason that the Germans were able to efficiently achieve their goals in these camps. Because the purpose was only for extermination, there were no selections at these camps. Instead, the railroad cars were directly unloaded and the prisoners were forced to proceed with what they believed to be a normal selection. They were forced to undress and then were told to either go towards the showers or to sit in the van for transportation to the barracks. This matched the experience that many had had at previous labor camps. Inmates were far too weak by this point in the pipeline to resist against highly trained, specialized military forces. The best chance to survive temporarily was to be picked to do one of the tasks around the camp. This could even include removing the bodies from the vans, or digging the mass graves to bury the evidence, for the camps that didn't have a crematorium at least. According to the Weiner Holocaust Library, the majority of those selected for any kind of work within this type of camp would die within weeks or months of their arrival from lack of food, disease, or overwork. Those that did survive were often killed after a short period and replaced with new arrivals. We have examined and hopefully put to rest some of the infamous myths that surround the events of the Holocaust. Among those already discussed have been the myths that it never happened, that it was a crime perpetrated by only a few higher-ups, that soldiers were just following orders and didn't know the extent of their participation, 
and that if we had known about it, we would have stopped it sooner. I want to specifically make sure that we shine some light on one last myth, which is the belief among a select few that the Jewish people went to their deaths meekly. Again, high schoolers who have comparably had extremely privileged lives can't possibly understand what people went through during this time period. I always have a few freshmen that say, why well, would have just fought back and won? Each step of the Holocaust included a relatively simple choice. Simple, at least to my mind. The first choice presented to the Jewish people in Nazi territories was abandon your entire life and make an attempt to move to Poland, which unbeknownst to you wouldn't have helped in the long run, or you could put up with some discrimination, such as wearing a special star of David Patch. Obviously, they aren't comparable, but I work in an industry that has a dress code, and most of us adults have to wear badges or uniforms. It's an annoyance, but something that I would put up with before relocating my entire life and quitting my job. The next choice was to move into a special part of the city, or risk probable violent death at the hands of gangs, criminals, soldiers, and the Einsatzgruppen. The third choice was whether you would move from a special part of the city to a work camp or would you rather be shot on sight by a military soldier. These choices were made by regular individuals, scared parents, bakers, shop owners, and religious leaders. The decisions were forced upon those regular individuals by highly trained and specialized soldiers. I can imagine myself fighting back against a squadron of marines, but in real life it isn't ever going to end well for me. Each of those choices aren't even options in my world. I know exactly where I would have ended up if I had been in the shoes of the millions caught up in the Holocaust. To be clear though, there were individuals that fought back. Also to be clear, when the entire state is geared towards your death, just surviving is itself an act of courageous resistance. Every single day that a weary and beaten down individual rose out of their crowded bunk and made their way to the selection line was in and of itself an act of resistance. The most famous of all resistance efforts was the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. 1942, Warsaw was home to approximately 400,000 Jewish residents. Over a period of three months, 265,000 were deported to death camps. 35,000 were killed in the ghetto for standing in opposition to these liquidation efforts. In April of 1943, rumors arose that the Germans were planning to remove the 135,000 remaining members of the ghetto and transfer them to the Treblinka death camp. Groups led by 700 members of the Jewish fighting organization known as the ZOB courageously attacked German tanks with homemade Molotov cocktails and small arms that they had smuggled into Warsaw. The ZOB managed to kill 12 Nazis in the first assault and repelled the forces outside the walls of the Jewish area. 
Guerrilla tactics soon emerged, and the residents of Warsaw were able to hold off the Nazis for a remarkable 27 days. But these resistance stories rarely ended well. Keep in mind that the end goal for the Germans was the death of all of the individuals in the ghetto. Reinforcements came in and the Germans razed the ghetto to the ground. They burned and demolished it block by block in order to smoke out their prey. Most resistance fighters committed suicide to avoid capture, and on May 16th, the Nazi commander announced to Berlin that the former Jewish quarter in Warsaw is no more. 42,000 survivors were captured and then sent to three different labor camps. Most of those individuals died in a shooting operation codenamed Harvest Festival a few months later. Harvest Festival was initiated because of increasing resistance occurring throughout the Polish camps. In addition to Warsaw, Balostok, Treblinka, and Sobodor all experienced internal insurrections. Fearing contagion, Heinrich Himmler ordered the deaths of all the remaining 45,000 Jewish prisoners in the three camps. The Nazis returned to Einsatzgruppen tactics and forced prisoners to dig their own ditches. Music blared throughout the area to cover up the sound of gunfire and the screams of victims. Those that managed to escape the camps often joined up with Soviet resistance groups to harass and attack the camps. Similar resistance groups formed in occupied France, including the Armée Juvie or Jewish Army, and in Belgium, Italy, the former Yugoslavia, Greece, and Slovakia. Individual stories mimic the fate of the brave men and women in the Warsaw Ghetto. Tosia Altman played a role in Warsaw. She was a proud Jewish woman who had a love of languages and reading. She escaped Warsaw in 1939 on foot amid fleeing refugees and aerial bombings from both the Germans and the Soviets. Once safely away, Altman forged documents to remove her Jewish status from her Polish papers and smuggled herself back into the Warsaw Ghetto, where she organized the ZOB resistance and served as a point person for smuggling operations. On the twelfth day of fighting, the organization's bunker was discovered, and although she escaped the gas that was piped into the bunker, a fire spread to the attic that had served as their escape hatch. She was badly burned and collapsed after jumping from the engulfed attic. Altman was handed over by Polish police to a hospital, but that medical facility left her to die of her burns as they refused to treat her and potentially even tortured her during her final two days of life. Tosia Altman illustrated the spirit of resistance, as did Mordecai Ennebaum, a ghetto resistance fighter who said, the force that has overcome Europe and destroyed entire states within days could cope with us, a handful of youngsters. It was an act of desperation. We aspired to only one thing to sell our lives for the highest possible price.
these fighters were a continuous thorn in the side of the SS, but they paid dearly for it. Still, there is heroism in escaping the Holocaust, only to return to die fighting against the Nazis by choice. It is impossible to comprehend the magnitude of the Holocaust. More than six million Jewish individuals were systematically murdered. During this time, significantly large amounts of the world's population actively participated, and another absurdly large group ignored the obvious wrongs that were occurring. In 1933, there were only nine million Jewish inhabitants in Europe. Hitler had succeeded in killing two out of every three of them. The Holocaust shows the very worst of what human beings are capable of. Even the good guys in the story don't appear very moral. The German ship, St. Louis, left Hamburg on May 13, 1939. Its precious cargo included 937 passengers, most of whom were Jewish refugees. The cruise across the Atlantic was referred to by its passengers as a vacation cruise to freedom. There were daily swimming lessons in the pool, religious services that were offered at the beginning of each Sabbath, and they even covered up the mandatory bust of Adolf Hitler with a tablecloth. The ship was headed to Cuba, but only 28 passengers were allowed to get off of the ship. While they had been at sea, Cuba had changed its immigration policies to restrict the entry of any foreigner unless they were from the United States. The St. Louis next sought port in Florida, but was again turned away as the U.S. had met its quota of Jewish immigrants for the year. The U.S. State Department and the Coast Guard literally escorted the ship and its remaining 907 passengers away from U.S. territory. Canada was the next to refuse the refugees, and the ship was forced to return to Europe. Beginning on June 16th, the St. Louis would make four stops, dividing up its refugees and settling them in the Netherlands, Belgium, France, and Great Britain. These nations would soon be under assault or controlled by the Germans. Attempts to trace the fates of the St. Louis's passengers show that half survived the war. But most of those were the lucky ones that had been allowed to disembark in Britain. Only 87 of the 254 passengers that arrived in Belgium, France, and the Netherlands managed to survive. Why couldn't the U.S. take in 900 souls that needed saving? 83% of Americans opposed increasing immigration levels at the time. The president was merely making a political play based upon the mood of the country. FDR would make another awful decision based upon the mood of the country in 1942, when he ordered the establishment of Japanese internment camps, our own version of a concentration camp. Although they weren't nearly as bad as the German version, it is critical that we hold our own nation to higher standards. Holocaust survival Eli Weitzel accepted his Nobel Peace Prize in 1986 with these words. 
I swore never to be silent whenever and wherever human beings endure suffering and humiliation. We must always take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. The Holocaust also serves to show us what we are capable of on the positive end. The ability for individuals to endure what they endured is remarkable and difficult to comprehend. We like to regularly complain about life's troubles and whether or not we can handle them. In my own life, though, this I can overcome statement is followed by complaints about figuring out what's for dinner, time for grading papers, taking the kids to soccer practice, and other mundane items. Each and every day, residents in the concentration camps woke up despite every single part of their body screaming at them not to. Many of them continued to maintain their faith traditions and community. I had the privilege to not just read George Lucius Saltzman's memoir, but to also sit down and talk with him for about 20 minutes. The Holocaust had not destroyed this man. It should have ruined him, but it hadn't. Mr. Salton passed away in 2016 after a sudden illness. He was a teenager when the Holocaust began, and he managed to live until he was 88 years old. After his camp was liberated, he joined the U.S. Army, met his wife Ruth, and had three children. He earned a couple of college degrees with magna cum laude honors. There was nothing screaming to me that this man sitting across from me had been through hundreds of tragic moments and was lucky to have survived. In that moment, he was just a normal man giving advice to a young teacher. At this point, I learned that life after inevitable death was and is possible. Mahatma Gandhi, another great man who also doesn't make it out of this time period looking perfect because of his protests against the British war efforts, leaves us with this thought. Never lose faith in humanity. Humanity is like an ocean. If a few drops of the ocean are dirty, the ocean does not become dirty. But in regards to the events we have just discussed, enough of the ocean of humanity was polluted that it desperately needed to be cleaned. And that is where seeking justice comes in. In the immediate aftermath of the Holocaust, the first international war crimes trial in history took place in Nuremberg. In nine months, the International Military Tribunal indicted 24 high-ranking military, political, and industrial leaders of the Third Reich. Twelve of the defendants were sentenced to death. Three were acquitted, and the rest were sentenced to prison for terms between 10 years to life imprisonment. Winston Churchill argued for the execution of all German war criminals. Subsequent trials followed, and more than 1,500 Nazi war criminals were handed justice. Unfortunately, for those that desired it, we were robbed of the opportunity to see the heads of the Reich face their victims face to face. 
Hitler, Himmler, Goebbels, and others committed suicide before they could be tried. Still, others fled, such as the Angel of Death, Joseph Mengel. He took flight for Buenos Aires first, and then to Paraguay and Brazil. Mossad, Israel's intelligence agency, and private Nazi hunters, such as Holocaust survivor Simon Weizenthal, spent their lives trying to bring him to justice. For it is, as Weizenthal said, justice for crimes against humanity must have no limitations. He wasn't able to get Mengel, who died of a stroke while swimming, but he was responsible for the capture of Adolf Eichmann, the man that had been placed in charge of the deportation of all Jews before the so-called final solution had emerged. Living nearby his surviving family members, Weissenthal monitored the Eichmanns to find a clue to the Nazis' whereabouts. He eventually received one and passed it on to Mossad, who captured Eichmann in Buenos Aires in 1960. In 2021, we are running out of first-hand accounts and testimonies, as survivors of the Holocaust are inevitably peacefully departing from our world. But the world's search for justice continues. Incredible stories pass through my newsfeed every couple of years of a German Nazi still being brought to justice for their crimes. Fifteen days ago, a 100-year-old former Nazi guard has just gone on trial. He's charged with the death of 3,518 human souls. Three days ago, a 96-year-old woman who was the secretary at Auschwitz began her trial. She's charged with being an accessory to murder in more than 11,000 cases. Last year, a German court tried a 93-year-old former guard of Stutthof camp in juvenile court because he was only 17 years old at the time that the crimes were committed. That 93-year-old man was berated by the juvenile judge for believing in some of the myths that we have discussed here. Judge Anne Meir Goring addressed the defendant Bruno Day, stating for the record, quote, You still see yourself as a mere observer, when in fact you were an accomplice to this man-made hell. For his own part, Day leaves us with a final thought, telling us that, quote, Today I would like to apologize for those who went through the hell of this insanity. Something like this must never happen again. While true, this can only happen if we address what really happened and never let one man take the blame for what was humanity's fault. Day is being called to account even though the crimes happened 75 years ago. The desire for justice remains strong as more than three dozen survivors came to testify against him at his trial. Christopher Hobner, a member of the International Auschwitz Committee, attended the proceedings and praised the guilty finding, saying that the image of him sitting above the camp in his tower is reflective of the view he had of himself as above those who were suffering. He continues, and although he had decades to confront the horrors of what he witnessed, he remained silent. We must not. 
for as long as there are those that doubt the Holocaust, the charge to deny the denialists must continue to be passed down to future generations. There remains a need. I started this first portion of our Holocaust discussion with a story about school policy in Johnson County, South Carolina. In the time that it took me to finish the script, a school district of South Lake, Texas went significantly further than its South Carolina peer. The district has clarified that they were wrong for their initial position, which is good because their initial position is exactly why we need to continue to put a priority on Holocaust education. The principal of the school privately told his teachers that in order to comply with a Texas law that requires the teaching of opposite perspectives, the teachers would be required to provide opposing viewpoints regarding the Holocaust. To which one teacher promptly burst out, How do you oppose the Holocaust? Thank you for taking the time to learn about such an important event. My hope is that you will feel inspired to learn more stories about these events. If that's the case, my first recommendation to you is the wonderfully written 23rd Psalm, which you can find most places to sell quality literature. In our next episode, we'll return to a focus on Adolf Hitler and examine how his other war is going, the one for world domination.